First Peter 2:18-25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. There are a number of ways that we can create categories within sports and athletics uh, to distinguish different sports, but there are, different, uh, there are big categories, large groupings. There are team sports, sports that individuals compete in. Uh, there are sports that involve balls, and there are lots of sports that don't involve balls. Uh, and as you, as you look at the different categories, eventually if you get more specific, you could get into the uniqueness of a particular sport. So I'll give you an example of this. I'll describe a sport, and my guess is I'll quickly uh, hone in, allow you, as I'm describing, to rule out some options. So I'm thinking of a sport that has a ball uh, about this size. It's a round ball, and it's a team sport. And each team will dribble the ball up, passing it typically uh, past the midway point, um, trying to get through the defense and shoot and score. So what was I talking about? Was I talking about fencing, gymnastics, baseball? Probably not. Um, American football, well, you wouldn't say you're, you're running forward as a team with the ball, but you're not constantly passing. The ball's not round. You wouldn't say you're dribbling. It sounds like I'm talking about... Okay, soccer, basketball, was there anything else? I might be missing out on some sports, but we got pretty close that it could be soccer, could be basketball, Um, and each of those sports are actually quite similar, but they're quite different as well, by quite different. They're different in distinct ways, so there are superficial ways. Basketball players wear tank tops, I imagine, for the efficiency of, you know, you don't want to slow your arms down as you're putting your putting them up, whereas a soccer player could wear a tank top, but doesn't. I don't know that that's important. That's not a distinguishing factor. Although, you know, if you look at somebody's uniform, maybe you can tell which of the two sports they're playing. Uh, But there are some distinct things, even if there's similarities. Okay, the size of the field versus the size of the court. But I think a soccer player and a basketball basketball player could, could share a lot in terms of, well, how are you dealing with getting winded and out of breath, and what training do you do? But when it comes down to it, there are certain distinct things. Uh, one of the things that's somewhat more unique about soccer is it's played with your foot. And so if somebody plays multiple sports growing up, um, baseball, football, basketball, the instinct when a ball comes to you maybe be to reach out and grab it, and soccer you can't act on that instinct. You can't reach out and grab the ball no matter how much you're wired to do that because soccer is different. 
And so soccer and basketball are similar, but, but once you get into the details, there's enough distinctions that it would be odd to have a basketball uh, team against a soccer team. Well, which are you playing? Can you use your feet? Can you not use your feet? Can you use your head? Uh, how does that go? Using this analogy, because Jesus comes and he teaches us and he instructs us about life and he promises life in its fullness and joy and blessing. And he doesn't say it's going to be easy, but he says it's going to be good. And he's talking about things that are very relevant to life in this world. And so there are things that are bigger than life in this world about heavenly realities and an eternal future. But so much of what he's talking about is engaging uh, this world, embodied people, having to go to work and um, interact with other people. But one of the things that we find is, is Jesus is, has a different way of being. But what's curious is we're left in this world. And so one of the challenges for Christians is to be molded and shaped by him to, to follow, to trust him, to understand the, the sort of the comprehensive system of how things work together in his teachings. But to do them in this world where there's a lot of overlap with various people, various nations, various cultures, various ways of thinking of things. But there are also disconnects. In any given time, there are certain rules that are, are different. It's okay for a basketball player to reach out and grab a ball, but not okay for a soccer player. There are certain things that Jesus says, if you're my follower, you don't do this. But we live in a world where people play by different rules. And one problem of this is that as people who live in this world and are shaped by it, we read the teachings of Jesus and and we recognize they're different. In some ways, it becomes clear how appealing, how much better they are, but sometimes it seems odd. You know, for me, the idea of, 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 uh, of playing a, a, a ball with your foot, you know, it, I just don't have that coordination. And then you'll look at somebody who trains to that level and, and how specific from quite a distance they could consistently hit something and you realize, oh, what a marvelous capacity human beings have to, to take a part of their body that's meant to simply, I would think of just, we walk on it, but now they could use it with such skill. Um, there's something similar about drawing near to Jesus where he, he says things that may strike us as odd, offensive, unappealing, but you watch it take shape in him, and then if there are people, uh, followers, who demonstrate his ways, his character, there's something that shows a a remarkable capacity beyond what we can imagine. Um, but here we are engaged in this world and, and therefore there are certain disadvantages. If you're playing a sport where everybody gets to take, hold their hands and, and you have that limitation, it will feel unfair. And yet Jesus is saying there's a lot of overlap. Everyone wants to flourish. Everyone wants to be generous. Everyone wants these various things, but people break down quickly because of certain assumptions, certain ways of being. I'm calling you to something different. It's much better, it's gonna be harder, but it will be rewarding. But in the meantime, you will come up against these differences and you are not to change the rules of your game. You're to trust me and you're gonna feel disadvantaged. It's gonna be hard, it's gonna involve suffering, but it's good. So one of those topics is a word in our passage, the word subject. Um, and so uh, this has actually been in the passage last week, will be in the passage of the next two weeks. Subjection, in some translations, submission. It's a word that from many of us, you hear Jesus in this passage, servants be subject to your masters right away. Wait a second. And according to the rules of this world, the way things often function, that's a terrible teaching, isn't it? Because subjection is something we use to coerce and control others. Or if I'm willing to humbly 
uh, put the needs of others first and seek to build up others, well, then people will take advantage of me. So Jesus telling me to be submissive. <laughs> okay, what's he doing? He's, he's going to ruin me. He's gonna, what would happen if, if a large group of people did this? We would become taken advantage of. Jesus is saying, actually, if you understand a variety of things that I'm teaching about truth and courage and honesty and integrity, um, being meek, being humble, being kind, being generous, those characteristics are not weakness. They take great courage. Uh, they take great boldness. They could be costly. But if you do those things, you will find not only are you sustained better, but your place in the world is for uh, advancing what is good, even if it doesn't always work, even if the world doesn't appreciate it. So today we're talking about, uh, in particular, the, the general category is um, us as workers, because we're in this section where, where there's a principle that I introduced last week uh, that I think is important to keep as we go through this. And the principle is that when we're free, subjection can be a way of expressing love and honor. So that's the goal of, of uh, one of the key applications for us is to be people who love, to be people who honor. How do you do that? Well, the language of freedom from last week's passage, when you're free and you, when somebody's not forcing you into subjection, but when, when you humbly um, live for the good of others, that's a value. And it's something that the world values under certain circumstances, but takes advantage of enough that there's a vulnerability in doing this, believing it. And the vulnerability is seen in this passage. He's talking to servants. Now, the, the word translated servant, so this is verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. So respect, you could, you could see as a word that fits with that concept of honor. So in the previous weeks, honor everyone. Last week, we looked at honoring the emperor, the governors, the, uh, the political leaders. This week, honor the master. And the, the word servant there is a household servant. And so an appropriate translation in, in some translations is the word slave. And so right away there, that's uncomfortable. As Peter's saying, slavery is good, whether it was in the ancient Roman form or forms of any other place or time or culture. Is Peter saying slavery is good? No. He's not saying this is how we construct a system or a household or a fair work and economic environment. He's writing to Christians that in different times and places will be subject to different kinds of economic systems, different kinds of agreements, different phases of life. And this idea that we see in other parts of the New Testament, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, this idea of being subject, when everything is right, is a great way to be. But here's an example of what happens in, in an economic relationship that's not fundamentally right. Actually, there's corruption in the very structure of it. Well, Peter, if you asked him, may have a lot to say about dismantling slavery or, or a better way. But what he's doing is telling Christians in the midst of this world, I'm still encouraging you to be faithful, to love and to honor, and to not have that taken from you. It's a way of maintaining the freedom in Christ. And so, so the application for us today, where hopefully most of us in whatever our work situation is, and by work, typically that's employment, but if you're a student, Honoring your teacher would be an appropriate application to this. Uh, some of you are self-employed, in which case your client is not your boss, but honoring them somehow, uh, they have a certain dynamic of power. When you think of the various kinds of things, uh, the vulnerabilities, what we're encouraged to is uh, to honor, to love. And one of the ways we do it in the humility of following Christ is to accept the title of servant 
and to be willing to serve, um, even if in a particular situation it's corrupt, and we may need to address that and correct it. But in the meantime, the encouragement to, for us in whatever our situation is, is to be honorable, and part of that is honor the people you answer to. So, uh, what I want to do as we move into this passage is, is note three lessons that we can get as we talk about this topic. And so it won't be comprehensive. There's, there's actually a lot of hard questions that come out of this topic. But I think there's a lot we could learn for this week. And the first is, don't give in or give up. So don't give in or give up. A Christian theology of work is that work is good. And again, I'm not talking just about employment, but I'm talking about using our gifts and developing skills and devoting time and energy towards things that make things better for others. And so that's very general. But the idea is work is valuable. It's not simply those who, rete- those who feel that work is a curse. And my goal is just to, to do it because it's required of me. But the hope is f- for a life fully of leisure. Christianity would say leisure is valuable, but actually productivity in the right forms is valuable. Gaining skills, uh, making a unique contribution, those things are valuable. The problem is we live in a corrupted world. And therefore, in the beginning of the Bible, by the sweat of your brow, you will earn your bread. Work is now hard, not in a good, satisfying way that you'd give yourself to something challenging and you solve it, you could be proud of yourself. There's still that. But now work is hard in a way that you put in a lot of time and effort and it's not productive. It's discouraging. You give of yourself and then you're taken advantage of. And so you work hard to honor the person you work for and the person you work for wants to honor their own career track and so they don't give you the credit. That's the kind of thing that happens in our world. And therefore work is a source of frustration for all of us to some degree, the best of work environments. And so you may work for, uh, you may answer to an employer who is corrupt and unjust. But you may answer to an employer who's a decent person but not fully competent and where that person fails, you suffer for it. Or the person who's competent and good but goes through a tough season of life and therefore um, you bear the brunt of some of Uh, what's affecting them outside of the workplace. There are various kinds of scenarios we need to be prepared for, but all of us need to be prepared for, even in the best scenarios, things will be challenging, sometimes in an unfair way. Verses 19 to 20. This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So here's this verse. It is is a grace. It seems to be pleasing to God when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And I imagine many of us would then anxiously respond, well, what is it that's pleasing to God about unjust suffering? Is it the suffering? Does God like when we suffer? Or is it the injustice? Which is it that God likes? And that's how we often read these texts because we've been shaped by the world and the skepticism of the world. God is not pleased with suffering or injustice. God is pleased with those who endure in doing good. And one of the things that's very clear in the teachings of Jesus is he comes and he says the world is superficial and human beings are fundamentally weak and therefore our kindness will get stripped away, our generosity will get stripped away, we will love people when it's rewarding, but Jesus says, well, We are to be different. We will love even our enemy. Why? Because they deserve it? No, because love is who we are and comes out of who we are. 
See, the alternative is uh, at some point there's, there's an inner core that gives up and gives in. And what Jesus is saying is, but if you're going to follow me, there's a thorough renewal from the inside out. That means goodness is not just what you do because it works, but goodness becomes who you are. It becomes a way of life, whether or not it works. And so what's pleasing to God is not unjust suffering. What's pleasing to God is in the context where every one of us would show we're not good. We're angry enough that now we're going to repay with vengeance. It's when somebody mindful of God says, actually, I'm not going to become like the people mistreating me. But despite their corruption, I will still adapt to the situation honorably. That's what's being commended. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, verse 20. If you do good and suffer for it and you endure, you keep going, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Suffering is not good. Injustice is not good. Goodness is good, and that's what we're called to. And what we're warned is that the world will push against it, will strip away your desire to be honorable and to show honor. And we're being pushed to say, don't let your circumstances draw you in or push you out. So I'm saying do not give in or give up. So first, giving in would be uh, somebody is mistreating you, mistreat them back. They speak poorly about you, go speak poorly about them. Encouraging that spirit of vengeance, of spite, we're warned, don't do it. That would be giving in. The people who are the worst examples for you are now defining your behavior. Don't do it. That's the aggressive response. The passive response, giving in. I'm just not going to say anything because I don't want anyone to get upset. Don't give in that way. Don't quit without first being clear and truthful. Don't just go away. Don't let, don't let um, somebody's poor behavior have such an influence that, that you're robbed of the possibility of good. What we're told is don't give up. Quit, be silent, don't give in, don't become like the people feeling that's the nature of the game, I'm just going to change the game. We're told to endure, to keep doing good. And so Jesus is presented to us as an example here um, in, in verse 18 where it says, Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. It's that context where the person is unjust, where, where the goodness becomes clearer because we're not giving in, we're not giving up. Jesus is an example in verses 22 to 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So what is the example of Jesus here? Well, it's remarkable. He didn't give up, he didn't go away, and he didn't give in. If they revile, I'll revile in return. And you could see this throughout his ministry, but clearest is when he's on the cross and people are hurling insults and abuse. There's no threat. You just wait and see. There's no need to vindicate himself. Now, the example here is not his silence, although there's certainly something about his silence in the sight of Pilate, for example, where he's being falsely accused and he's not defending himself. That may help us uh, learn a, a different way against our instincts of defensiveness or feeling the need to explain in a situation where it won't work. Jesus' example is not that he was always silent, but that he didn't sin. When he was reviled, the point is not that he didn't say anything, but he, what, what he didn't do was revile. When he suffered, what he didn't do was threaten. And so you see throughout the ministry of Jesus that he's neither passive, afraid, nor aggressive, just responding. 
But there's an integrity, there's a truthfulness. And so Jesus clearly did things that rocked the boat. He upset people and then he spoke to them. And so he's not yelling, he's not threatening, but by being a person of integrity, people get upset enough that they plotted to kill him. So he's not passively trying to avoid upsetting people. But he's not upsetting people because he's giving in to sinful patterns. Instead, there's an integrity to him in his goodness. Goodness should invite gratitude, appreciation, marvel, joy. In the complexity of this world, sometimes goodness draws out other things. The warning here is follow his example. He didn't sin when that happened to him. So now you need to look at your context, the unfair context. What does it look like to not sin? And so when I say don't give up, that doesn't mean don't quit your job because maybe you should. Maybe the smartest thing to do is to say, this place is so unhealthy, I'm just going to leave. But here's the question. Are you leaving without ever having told your boss, you know, you speak to me in a demeaning way, and that's not okay? If you haven't said that, don't quit. <laughs> don't give up. If you've said it, and the boss is still demeaning, then maybe you quit. Um, that's the difference here. What we're, t what we're called to is to remain honorable. Now, uh, an interesting example of how to think about this. I, I thought of there's a classic scholar named Sarah Rudin, or Rudin, I'm not sure how to pronounce, I don't know where the accent on her last name is. So she's not a Bible scholar or a theologian, but she wrote a book on the Pauline letters of the New Testament. She did that because she says, as a classic scholar, I'm so steeped in Greco-Roman history that in my first, or, or my just average reading of the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, I was offended, I was put off, I didn't like this guy. <laughs> and then I used the skills of my classics training to think about what was his context, what was he doing, and then I started to see something different. So for example, she talks about his letter, Philemon. So he writes a letter, there's an escaped slave, Onesimus, who becomes a Christian, and Paul sends him back with a letter of appeal. And the modern reader would say the appeal should be strong, renouncing the institution of slavery. Paul doesn't do that, so that troubles us, rightly so. But what Sarah Rodin says is, but when you understand economics in the first century, when you understand citizenship, and she highlights in particular the language of the book, if you understand fatherhood and brotherhood, then when you read Philemon, he's not for slavery, he's not quietly accepting a corrupt system. If you actually understand how radically different his assumptions were as he sends Onesimus back, first, she says, his actions protected Onesimus in a way that could not have happened with the alternatives we would have come up with, which is to, to encourage him to run away or to have come up with some alternate system. She actually says this actually was probably in his best interest. But one of the things she says as a historian is this way of being made its way over the years into the culture. So eventually within Rome, it became obvious that their system was corrupt and the transformation happened through the, the growing influence of thinking like the countercultural thinking of Paul. We don't, we don't necessarily see it, but that's one of the things we need to be aware of. When Peter writes and says, servants, be subject to your master, there's still an application for us as we think about what are the scenarios where, where I'm being treated unfairly and I don't want to give in and be spiteful and become a bitter person. And I don't want to quietly go away. Um, that's what we need to pray. Lord, what, in my context, my life, how do I adopt to this situation? How do I honor you? How do I show honor? And it's that that says if Peter were writing this letter today, he might have used different language, but I think he would still encourage every one of us here 
somebody has authority over you and be honorable, not just to those who are just, but don't be baited, don't be tempted by those who are unjust. So um, the first lesson that I just want you to consider is don't give in, don't give up. Here's the second lesson. Return to the shepherd of your soul. This is really important in this passage. Before you go out and do anything, return to the shepherd of your soul. When we think about work, one of the languages of uh, one of the terms that comes up in the topic of vocation historically, at least in the modern period, is the concept of calling. You know, where it's not just about here's me and my dreams and what I want to do, but but is there a broader sense of responsibility? Is there a discernment that objectively I could look at who I am and what I might be good at, or, or just given my current place and circumstances, what are my options? That concept of calling, there's something, something bigger than just me and what I want, but there's, there's something of a, of a greater significance to how we do our work. Charlie Drew, in his book, Journey Worth Taking, talks a lot about calling and applying it to the workplace. But he makes an important point in the book where he says there is a primary calling, and that primary calling is not as worker, not as employee, not as doer, not as person with skills and abilities, not as contributor to society. But it's a calling, an invitation from God to be reconciled, to be a son or a daughter. And see, if we get that wrong, if we have this out of order, then the right way of thinking is, how can I serve the world? Who can I be? What can I do? Without being anchored, it becomes burdensome, it becomes oppressive because it becomes our identity. Now I am who I am if I have prestige, if I'm accomplishing, if I'm achieving, if I'm skilled. And there's a primary calling that says before you think about what you can do in the world, get clear on who you are. You're not first and foremost an employee. You're not first and foremost somebody in this field. But we're invited first and foremost to be children, to be beloved, to, to be part of a family. And out of that, there's a different way of then saying, now in the world, what can I do that would be good? Meaning, what are my options? What are my resources? What's the best I can do? They may be limited. Don't feel bad about it because your identity is not that you're having the most influence. Your identity is you're living honorably. And so in verse 21, it says, for this, to this you have been called because Jesus also suffered for you. Um, what is the calling? It's not, first of all, to be subject to an unjust master. To this you have been called, <laughs> to hear the good shepherd who says, follow me, learn of my ways and do them. That's the primary calling. So before we think about going out this week and dealing with uh, problems in the workplace, get clear that your identity, your life, your hope, your future is not tied to what you produce, to what others think of you, to the honors that society bestows on you. And so that's why First Peter, in the opening of the book, says you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have a new identity, a new goal. And it's when you have that, it's that context that Peter could say, if you get that, then I could tell you be subject uh, to your master. If I were Peter, I would say, if you don't have that, actually ignore the thing about being subject to your master. Don't try to do it. But I think, but if you have this new life, if you're filled with the Spirit and you're prepared to be honorable... Well then, uh, here's an, a countercultural way of being honorable. So in verse 24 to 25, we're shown the way that Jesus engaged this world. He was of the world to the degree that he spoke about relationships and work and our emotions and joy. 
but he was not of this world, and that there were some fundamental differences. Verses 24 and 25, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so Jesus gives an example about worldly shepherds. They're hired, right? They're employees. That's the workplace arrangement. And what do you do? You watch those sheep as best as you can because you have a responsibility. You like the farmer uh, that you work for. You want to be rewarded or you just like him and you want to be a good steward. But at the end of the day, it would be remarkable if you laid down your life for the sheep when it's just your job. Jesus comes and says, but I'm the good shepherd. <laughs> I'm not here as the hired hand, the employee. I'm the one who uh, is the creator, the owner, the one who's responsible for these people. And they're gone as, they've gone astray and they're vulnerable. And they are not going to get out of this on their own. So I'm going to go after and I'm going to call them back. And what the hired person would do is call and run, but at some point they would say, I'm tired, I can't keep doing this, they would quit. What we're told is Jesus doesn't come as the boss, but he comes as the owner and he calls and we don't listen. And so he goes further. But what happens ultimately is that Jesus lays down his life. And so, so that picture of Jesus being subject of him who is free, but laying down his life in love, shows a remarkable different way of being. Who would do that for someone else? And what we're told is you are straying, he did that for you. You are hurting, but he did something that can heal you. So it's not a moral message that says learn of his teachings and go do them, but it's come, respond to this call and be healed. Now the question that, that we have that I don't have time to address today is how does this work? And I'm not going to address that today, but I just want to point to the clarity of this passage because we talk about this all the time. And, you know, as Christians, we should be talking about this all the time. But, but the, the how does it work makes us wonder, you know, is this even true? What a clear statement in the Bible. He bore our sins in his body. That's the, the clear claim of the gospel. By his wounds, you have been healed. How does it work? Well, well, study the Bible. Pray that God would show you. Learn to marvel at this reality. But in the calling, if this is true, come and follow him. Receive his healing. And then go into the world under a different set of, of a way to live. You now go into the world um, as somebody of honor, somebody who's been loved. And what we're told is endure. Don't give up. Keep being honorable. Show honor. Love people. But do it because of what he has done on our behalf. And so before we think about what we do in the world, we need to get clear, who are we? What is our hope? And that's the power of the gospel message. You may have failed. You may not be good at your job. You may need to leave your field. You may not need to leave your field. Those are important questions because of the time and the energies you devote. But the more important question, who are you? What is your life all about? Your paycheck is not the defining factor. The approval of your peers are not the defining factor. Your sense of accomplishment of what you've done is not the defining factor. It's the calling that says, come anyway, and the one who loves you will lead you, and he will help you. And yes, your life may flourish, and it may flourish in your career. Give thanks for it. But if you don't flourish in your career, don't despair, because your career is very important, but it's not who you are. It's not the measure of your value. It's not your ultimate calling. So 
Return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's the invitation. Not just do what I have done, but come and trust me. Be healed. But now, in fellowship with Jesus, then we go back to the world to imitate him. So here's the third lesson, the third thing I want to encourage you with, is to follow in the steps of Jesus. So don't give in, don't give up. Return to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. But here's last. Now, follow in the steps of Jesus, which is that imitation. Now, learn what he did and think of how to apply it in your situation. What, what of his character, what of his actions have relevance for your situation? Give thought to that. But see, this is the difference between what we're talking about the workplace and employment. It's if you do all of these things, we will pay you. <laughs> and so many of us then in, in, in the Christian perspective think, well, if I do all of these things, God will reward me. But it's that turnaround. Well, in the world, there's enough skepticism. If I pay you up front, you may run with the money or you may have proven to not do a competent enough job. I'm going to hold it back. And so then we take that paradigm to Christianity. Well, he tells me to imitate him, and so I'm going to do those things, and then we'll see how God evaluates my service. The gospel's entirely different. He gives you everything up front. And there's freedom that says, now go out and take whatever he's given you and use it wonderfully. And don't get discouraged. Keep trying. Keep going. It's a different way of being because it's the way of grace. That's one of the things of this passage. It's a gracious thing when people endure doing good, mindful of God. And so it's that, that transformation. So for example, if you're a student, your work is to study. And so your teacher, by analogy, is kind of your master in a, in a sense. And so what happens is one of the dangers of a Christian view of work where we say, do all things for God's glory, they're no longer your boss, God is your boss. If you haven't transformed into God's ways, then it's going to actually uh, cause great difficulty for you in your life of faith because then the freedom that you have to say, I don't need to impress my teacher because my teacher, I'm going to honor my teacher. I'm going to trust that they have the wisdom and sometimes a teacher is shouldn't be appointed to that position because they're incompetent. Sometimes the person's very competent and you don't see it because they're the teacher and you don't know what you don't know. And so there's a certain honoring of the teacher that you will do. And so there you are having your math test. The danger for the Christian is on the one hand the freedom of saying, I don't do this math test to impress the teacher or my parents or my employer. I'm going to do my work for God's glory. But without the paradigm shift, your math grade comes back lower than you expected. And now you're not simply concerned about your final grade, but you didn't serve God well, right? You're doing all things for God's glory. That C minus, sorry, God, I need to apologize for being an unfaithful servant. Now, if it's because you were on Instagram when you should have been studying, maybe it would be appropriate to say, Lord, I wasn't faithful in my work. But doing your work for God's honor is different enough that, yes, your grades matter. Yes, all of these things can be part of a healthy system, but we need that transformation of grace that says if you're going to do all things, whatever you do, you work for God's glory. There's a freedom to it, but it involves discipleship. It involves trusting Jesus and following him, or else we're going to wind up um, creating a religion that fits whatever economic system we, we exist in. And then God is just like your boss. And what we're told instead is learn who God is by the invitation to follow Jesus. And then when you go out into the world, it will give you different tools, a different way of seeing and experiencing things. So, verse 21, Jesus leaves you an example so that you may follow in his steps. And what is the example? Well, verse 19, the encouragement is when mindful of God, that's the situation. You have to figure out how do I respond to this situation, an opportunity or 
or a difficulty, a corrupt situation. How do I respond? What is my way forward? Well, do it mindful of God. But being mindful of God is not that now I have a boss who knows more, who has a higher standard, and it's more terrifying. It's I'm mindful of God who's gracious and wise, who's given me his son, who offers me forgiveness, who promises me hope. So if I'm mindful of him, that actually frees me to actually do my best. And so I'm mindful of him. What are we imitating with Jesus now in some of the ethical applications? So, so one of the things is he, re, he was reviled, but he didn't revile in return. That's something to practice. What does it look like when people hurl abuse at us for us to respond truthfully, honestly, without giving in? Before we get there, we should realize that the imitation of Jesus is not in all of the specific ethical actions he has done. Although all of that is left there, recorded for us in the Gospels to apply for our lives. We should figure them out. But verse 23, I think, is the primary heart of what we should think about imitating of Jesus. What is it that Jesus did when he faced unjust suffering? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I think that gets closer to the example that Jesus left. He continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. That is so important. If your theology says God is good. At the end of the day, however this plays out in this corrupt world with all of my flaws in this difficult life, I can trust him that if I'm honorable, if I do his ways, it's not going to have proven to be foolish or disgraceful, but there will be vindication. It's that that allows you to face a person where you don't know if they're unjust and corrupt intentionally, if they're incompetent, Or maybe in a different time and place they would be great, but right now they're just having a tough time and you're bearing the brunt of it. We don't always know. And so it's not that you need to figure that out to decide whether or not you should be honorable. You need to be honorable. Now, figuring that out could help you decide, do I quit or do I not quit? But in the meantime, uh, facing those situations, saying, what does it look like to endure honorably? That foundation of faith. Not just, I believe religious things, but I trust God. I trust him who sent Jesus and called me and he gave himself for me. So I don't need to doubt whether or not he cares, whether or not he will provide, whether or not he will lead me. Right now, I'm confused. Things are not clear. I don't know what to do. Where are you, God? Why is this happening? All of those things are part of our experience. But what we're told is imitate Jesus. When he went to the cross, he knew the Father was good. His ways were right. So Jesus was willing to face the unjust suffering because of of what his particular calling accomplished. By facing unjust suffering, he died in our place so that we would not face it in the ultimate way, just or unjust. That enabled him to be honorable in the face of corruption. When we're told to imitate Jesus, imitate the one who entrusted the goodness of God and the justice of God. That allows you to remain a person of honor and to be honorable as you go out into the world. Uh, as, as an example of this, um, the analogy is not exactly right. I was trying to think, is there an example of, of a boss who's acting unjustly? And, and my example is coming from somebody who uh, is self-employed, but I think the dynamics of this is right. So uh, there's a psychologist named Diane Langberg, and she happens to be a Christian, and she works, uh, her, her particular focus is often dealing with issues of trauma, but because she's a Christian, she sees a lot of Christians. And on the one hand, it gives her the opportunity to encourage and help, but not only does it expose her through the stories of she's hearing of just how awful the world is, but she's also seeing within Christian relationships 
Christian leaders within the church, just how discouraging things can be. Um, so here's somebody who's giving her life and her career to trying to use her time and her skills to help others. And she, uh, in one of her books, talked about a period where she went through getting pulled in. She was so exposed to corruption that it was starting to shape her. She was being drawn in by it. And so I'm going to read to you a, to you a paragraph um, from her book. She said, I struggled. I struggled with disbelief, anger, cynicism, and judgment. I wanted to make a whip and turn tables over. A subtle arrogance crept in. Arrogance assumes superiority. Cynicism expects the worst of people. And I, who judged others in the body of Christ for being whitewashed tombs, full of abuse and immorality, had myself become a whitewashed tomb full of pride and bitterness. I had become that for which I had disdain, a whitewashed tomb telling other white uh, attending other whitewashed tombs. A change in me began the day I knew I could no longer do the work that was in front of me. I was at the end of me, my skills, my stamina, my endurance, and my willingness. I did not see how I could go into one more dark and poisonous place. I was catching the disease I was working with. I got down on my face before God, told him I was finished, and asked him what to do. And he began to teach me. He taught me that this is not my work but his. I'm merely invited to participate in what he is doing in this world. It is not my burden. It is his, and I am invited to be his yoke fellow and walk with him in this world. Now, this is one specific example of how somebody got pulled in and saw they were being affected by their situation, by the problems of the situation. And she said it was, it was shaping who I was. And so she had this moment of falling on her knees and seeking God's help. And that transformation is what kept her from quitting, what kept her from going and kept her from being effective and able to remain in that space. It's not that that was the end of her struggle, I'm sure. She continued to struggle. Now, the danger of that example is, uh, you know, she's doing this direct work of, of trying to do good for people who have been harmed. And these days, we rightly have this ideal that our careers should be valuable, we should be world changers, except that the world needs lots of things. We need some people that are world changers, and we need other people who do the basic things that need to get done. And so the example is not you need to find yourself in a place where you're explicitly serving God by confronting injustice. Some of you have that calling. Answer it. There are tools here, but some of you spend time behind spreadsheets, and that's valuable. It's important. What we're told is more broadly, though, if you do your work in this world, you are going to be touched by something wrong within you, by your coworkers, by the nature of your industry, and you will get pulled in. And it can happen over time, and you may not realize it's happening, but some, at some point you'll see the, the signs. You want to revile. You want to repay evil for evil. And what we're told in those moments is return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And, and you will not get a quick answer of what you should always do in every circumstance. But in prayer and humility, when you say, lead me, what does it look like to trust you that you judge justly? What does it look like to follow Christ, to apply to this situation, this confusing situation, some action that would make clear I'm not giving in and I'm not giving up, but I'm following? Um, that's what we need to imitate. Jesus did it, leaving an example, not be perfect as he was perfect, the gospel is he was perfect. You will never be perfect. So don't try to be perfect. 
Try to trust the one who was on your behalf. And then apply his ways of being, his teaching to your circumstances so that you don't uh, give in to a corrupt world, uh, getting pulled into a way of sin where you don't give up without having the opportunity to have an impact to change the world. That's the opportunity if you are fully being changed as a disciple of Jesus. You can be different in whatever work you do. So this week, practice it. Let me pray for us. Our Father, Jesus is a remarkable example. We thank you that we are not called to be as perfect as he was, but that his perfection is given to us to cover our flaws, that his suffering was to relieve us of the suffering that comes from our foolishness or the suffering that comes uh, from the corrupt world we inhabit. Lord, in time and space, each of us this week will face challenges. There will be opportunities, there will be discouragement, there will be temptation. Help us to learn what it looks like to imitate Christ, to trust you, and help us to see in the resources of what he's taught and what he has shown how to apply his ways to our context so that we are honorable, so that we do everything mindful of you with freedom, with gladness, knowing that we have been loved and seeking to do what is good and right with gratitude. Help us with these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.